You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. This morning, uh, we have the privilege of uh, inviting Mike Ford, uh, who's a young adult pastor uh, at Cedar Springs. Uh, Dave is actually offering uh, a workshop on the importance of church planning at Cedar Springs, and so um, Mike is coming uh, and preach with us. So Mike, would you come on up here? Uh, Mike's preached with us before, uh, once before, I believe, last summer, and so uh, I'm excited to hear uh, from him again. Thanks, man. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, I am Mike Ford, married to Deanna. Uh, we have four kids, and yeah, Dave and I got to switch places, so glad, glad to be with you guys again. Um, I also cut my finger as a sous chef. I said yes, chef, so many times. I cut my finger, and so I'm sorry you're seeing this. My daughter put on the colorful Band-Aid on top, but here we are. Um, we don't want blood everywhere, so... Uh, uh, as a church, we're in the letter of the Hebrews, and though there's plenty of debate about who wrote it and which early church community it was written to, we know at least the author expected the readers to understand the Old Testament. And so he makes argument after argument in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than anything offered to us in the Old Testament, whether angels, which is from chapter one, or from the law, anything, Jesus is better. And the author also knows we're tempted to find life and meaning in something other than Jesus. This is what we do. And so he actually gives us a lot of warnings in the book of Hebrews. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is the first warning in the book of Hebrews. So thank you, thank you Dave, that I get to do that for you all. And here's the, main, here's the main warning, the main idea. Pay close attention. Pay close attention or you're going to drift away. That's the warning. Um, when I was just married to my wife, Deanna, uh, we took a boat trip with my brother and his wife in Florida on the Gulf of Mexico. We got a pontoon boat. We were having a good time. And next thing you know, there was a storm. And we look over there and there are water spouts forming. I don't know how far away, but they looked close. Uh, water spouts are these, you know, this whirling column of air and water mist on the water. And so we called the guy who we rented the boat from. He was this Australian and he was like, you'll never make it. Uh, Honka down. That's my best Australian accent. So we, we eventually try to make our way to an island and hunker down. Uh, on the way, uh, we saw some fins. And my brother's wife was like, oh, look, dolphins. And my brother's like, those aren't dolphins. <laughs> They're tiger sharks. We finally got to the shore of the island. We put the anchor down. And then we all just kind of huddled in the middle of the, of the pontoon boat. It was cold. It was raining. The, the storm was coming closer. And after a few minutes, we look up and we realized uh, we, we had drifted away from the island hundreds of yards, and we were closer to the storm than where we were when we started. The anchor wasn't working, and we hadn't been paying attention. And so my brother and I got into the warm water we, we, with the sharks. Um, we brought it back to the island, and we hunkered down, and we just held the boat next to the island until the storm passed us by. It was the scariest moment of my life. Um, and here's the point, when we weren't paying attention to the anchor and to the boat, like to the most important thing, we, we drifted away from safety. We drifted away from salvation. But when we decided to pay close attention, we were fine, right? And we were saved. That's the point. 
the author warns us to pay attention, and by paying close attention to what we hear, to what matters, he says, you're not going to drift away if you do that. So I'm, I'm going to read Hebrews 2, it's just four verses, and as I read it, I want you to ask yourself this question, um, what must we pay attention to? What must we pay attention to? Hear now the good news of a God who invites us, who invites us to see and to notice and to remember what we've heard. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word. It's good, true, and beautiful and given to us this morning in love. Let me pray. Lord, we're grateful uh, for passages like these that remind us of what really matters. Thank you for an hour on a Sunday, one, one hour a week where we're reminded to, to, to notice you, to pay close attention, to hear from you, and to receive from you. Please bless our hearts and minds as we open ourselves up to your word this morning. It's Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so two things. The, the author makes an argument, and then he gives some advice. Argument and, and advice. So first, he gives an argument. Now, the author employs a few rhetorical devices in order to really bring his argument home. Back then, in the Greek schools of learning, rhetorics, uh, which is the art of speaking or writing effectively, was a subject you took. And I am sure that when little boy author of the Hebrews went home, his parents wondered, is he learning anything from school? You know, I'm sure some of you wonder, are my kids learning anything from school, right? Well, he was. He did a great job at rhetorics. Your kids are going to be okay. They are, they're learning something. Uh, and so he gives two rhetorical devices. And rhetorical device number one is this. You would give a command. And then to add weightiness to that command, you would then ask a rhetorical question that you're not supposed to answer, the question itself is the answer, right? We're, we're used to this. Here's an example. I'll tell my kids, brush your teeth. It's a command. You must brush your teeth. And then I'll add a rhetorical question, which is, do you want to end up like grandpa? <laughs> which is a rhetorical question. It adds weightiness to my argument because grandpa would walk around with his dentures and a glass of water. And when it was time to eat, he'd pop them in. And so my kids knew when I said that, it added weightiness to the command. And we see this in our passage, verse 1. We must, it's an imperative, pay closer attention to what we've heard. And then in verse 3, we get a rhetorical question, which is, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape judgment, right? It's, it's adding emphasis to the command. Does that make sense? Rhetorical device number one. Rhetorical device number two, and this I think is a little more meaty. This is kind of what he's going for. And it's an argument of a lesser to the greater. He's making an argument from a lesser to the greater. And this is the idea of how much more. So basically, if it's true for something that's smaller or lesser, how much more is it true for something that's greater? So for example, I'll tell my kids, and I'm not proud of this actually, <clears throat> at church during the sermon, I'll say, look at this three-year-old during the sermon, sitting quietly, it looks like they're taking notes. You are eight years old. You are 10 years old, right? 
you should be able to sit quietly and listen. Now, if this three-year-old, not lesser, but you know what I'm saying, younger, is able to sit quietly, how much more should you be able to sit quietly during the sermon, okay? Again, not proud of it, not a great example, but you can see the argument, right? Lesser to greater. And this is what he does in verse two and three. And, and the reason we use rhetorical devices, it's to really emphasize a point. He says, look, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a punishment, a judgment. How much more? How much more if we neglect this great salvation? Now, quick side note. So this, this verse two is a lesser argument, okay? Message from angels, lesser argument. What is this message declared by angels? The author just proved the superiority of Jesus over the angels in chapter one. So angels are probably on his mind. Angels are lesser than Jesus, makes sense. Well, there's this Jewish theological tradition that had grown up around angels that they were the ones who dispensed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So in Deuteronomy 33, one, we read, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Moses is the one who received the law from God on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And it says, verse two, Moses says, the Lord came from Sinai where the law is and dawned upon us. He shone, he shone forth and he came from the 10 thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. 10,000 holy ones is a euphemism for angels. And so this tradition, this rabbinic tradition belief grew up that angels were the ones who dispensed the law to God's people. In fact, what's crazy is Paul in Galatians 3 in the New Testament picks up on this in verse 19 and says, why then the law right? The law was given at Mount Sinai. It was added because of transgressions, which is the word we read in verse two. And the law was put in place through angels. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, but we do know this, <laughs> that the message declared by angels, according to the author of the Hebrews, is the law. And so here's the point. If God gave us the law through angels, which is angels are lesser than Jesus, the law is lesser than the gospel, and if you disobeyed the law, there was a just retribution, there was judgment. And there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament. Probably the largest example is God sent his people into exile. That after hundreds of years of neglecting the law and holiness and sacrifice and love, they were exiled from the land. That happened, okay? So that's the lesser argument. So then we get to the greater argument in verse three, the rhetorical question. How, how much more, right, shall we escape the judgment if we neglect such a great salvation. This great salvation, this gospel, this good news of Jesus was declared to us by the Lord, which is Jesus. And then it was attested to us by those who heard, which were the disciples or the early apostles. And then, by the way, God also did a bunch of miracles and wonders that were attached to it. So you know it was really from God. And so here, here's, here's the point. Here, here's the point. The greater argument really lands home the warning. If there is punishment for disobeying the law, which is the lesser, how much more if we hear the good news of Jesus and neglect it? The author is really trying to highlight with this rhetorical device how much better Jesus is. Jesus is better. In Galatians, Galatians, sorry, <laughs> uh, the Australian accent, yeah, um, mixed with Southern 
Um, Galatians 3, Paul makes the argument that the law cannot save us. That you being a perfect human being cannot save you. The only point of the law is to expose and, and to condemn. But Jesus, in the good news of what he has done for us as a perfect, obedient life, in his suffering, sacrificial death, he can do so much more than the law. He can forgive us and save us from our sin. And John 3 says this succinctly. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. You want to know what the, the mission of Jesus was? It was to, to not condemn us, but to save us. And this is why it's important to understand this word salvation, which we read in our text, this great salvation. It literally means to deliver to rescue you, to remove you from a situation in which you cannot rescue yourself from, that you are helpless in. So for example, I have friends who are in AA, they've been sober for, for many, many years, maybe some of you are, are in that situation, and what they'll say is, they'll say, AA saved me, saved me. We're used to that word. And what they mean is it, it helped rescue them, deliver them from a situation in which they felt they were hopeless. And this is why the word salvation is connected in the Greek and in our passage and in the New Testament to healing, to wholeness. That when we talk about the salvation of Jesus, we're not just saying he forgave us of our sins. We're also saying he has the ability to heal us from our shame that stalks us like a shadow. To fix what feels irreparably broken in us and to redeem the sins of a past we cannot change. That's salvation. To make us whole again. That, that's what the work of Jesus does in us. To invite us into freedom and flourishing. And that's why it's greater than the law. That's what the author's saying. That's why it's better. So pay attention to it. That is a pretty airtight argument. He would have gotten an A in his class as a kid. The law cannot save us. Trying to be perfect cannot save us. Uh, but Jesus can. Jesus can. He's better. So the author employs these rhetorical devices in very short verses. And he actually layers them in. He's trying to use everything at his disposal to warn us that if we don't pay attention to Jesus and this great message of salvation and healing and wholeness, we will drift away and it will lead to death and destruction and disintegration. That's the argument. That's the argument. But because Jesus is better, he also gives us some advice. And really it's more than advice, but it messes up the alliteration, so I just kept advice. And we've already read the advice, but I'm just going to lean in real quick to the advice for us. Verse 1, therefore, pay attention, <laughs> pay closer attention to this Jesus. I love this because there's this tendency in us as human beings to take for granted people and messages we've heard, right? People we love most, we get too familiar, we begin to stop paying attention to them. Um, I was reminded of this on Valentine's Day. Uh, which was a.k.a. Ash Wednesday, great day. And my wife and I don't really celebrate it, and she's kind of like, hey, you don't have to give me anything, which is like a lose-lose, to be honest with you, you know? Because uh, who doesn't want to feel cherished, right? Who doesn't want an excuse to feel cherished? So ignoring the you don't have to do anything, I went to Trader Joe's, I got a card, got a drink she loves, some flowers, some tulips, which is our wedding bouquet. And then I got her a snack, and there at Trader Joe's, there's those mini peanut butter cups, you know what I'm talking about? There's the, there's the peanut butter cups, and then there's like those tiny, tiny ones. And my wife likes one and not the other. Why? Because she's a mystery, and it's frustrating, and I love it all at the same time. 
She loves one, she hates the other. So I asked my daughter on the way home from swim practice which one it is. We were talking about it. And we said, oh, it's got to be those like tiny ones, those mini ones. So we got it. I give her the gifts to say happy Valentine's Day. And you're correct. It was the wrong one. (laughs) And she says, you know I don't like those, right? And I said, no, I don't. I don't know. I know now. And what happened? What happened was I didn't pay close attention. I paid attention, but not but not close attention. Paying close attention is is everything. It's the difference between delight and disappointment. In the gospel and in our lives, it's the difference between between life and and death. So he gives us advice. Pay attention because if not, you're going to drift away. And I think we drift away for a few reasons. Modern American life is wonderful, but we drift away because of distractions. There are so many comforts that can lull us to sleep. Phones and social media and and sports and entertainment. We can get distracted with our work, with our kids' lives, with the next show to watch, updating our home and renovating or planning that next vacation. And, and, And in 10 to 15 years, we kind of look up and we don't recognize who we are anymore in the mirror. Like, how do we get here? We've neglected Jesus and his his grace. And so the question is, what's distracting you this morning? What's distracting you? Lent, Lent is a great time in the church calendar because it reminds us that it's important to restrain from certain activities in order to receive from Jesus, to pay closer attention to him. So what's distracting you? But another reason we drift away is we, we get complacent. Complacent. I think this is good advice for us uh, in southern Knoxville Christianity. Some, if not many of you, grew up in the church. And it be- can become very easy to stop paying attention to the songs, um, to the scripture, to the sermons, what's up. Um, and we can just slowly begin to drift away in our hearts and not even realize it. <laughs> like on the boat with my brother, we, we look up and we're far away from the shore of salvation we're in the middle of a storm and we're like, how did I get here? We've stopped paying close attention. Look, complacency is why relationships or marriages fall apart and partners drift away and friendships drift away because you stop paying attention. You stop noticing the grace and beauty and strength in the other. This is why our financial situation, situations can get out of hand because we stop paying attention to how we're spending money and on what. We just get complacent. Complacency is a drug of choice if you, if you want to drift away from Jesus. And the enemy loves distracting us and lulling us into numbness and complacency, into self-absorption. It's really probably one of the greatest dangers of the American church, where we feel like persecution is less of a, of a threat. Complacency is more, more of one. But you know what helps us pay close attention? You know, what's like cold water that splashes us in the face when we're sleepy? Or a match that's being lit in the middle of the darkness? It's the spiritual practice of noticing. The spiritual practice of noticing. That when the author says, pay closer attention, he's inviting us to go, what would it look like for you to notice the grace and mercy and salvation of Jesus in your life? To slow down it and notice. The late Irish poet John O'Donohue says that we often experience time like a jet ski skimming along the surface. But when you do that, it's fun, but everything goes by so quickly. But he invites us to sink beneath the frenetic waves of time because then and only then can we see everything clearly. We can notice. 
the beauty that was always there. We just, we just didn't pay attention enough. And I think there are a lot of ways for us to slow down and do the spiritual practice of noticing. I think coming to church expectant to hear from God. I think a weekly small group, of course, a spiritual conversation with a mentor or mentee. Reflecting on the day with gratitude before you fall asleep and noting one thing in which was a gift that day where Jesus was at work. Maybe it means reading a psalm when you drop your kid off at school or breathing in and out for a few seconds before you walk in the door after a crazy day at work. Here's why I love the act of noticing. It's because noticing leads to love. This is a warning passage, but the goal of the author is not to fill us with dread, but to fill us with love, right? It's a great salvation. He's better. He wants us to focus on that. Because when you slow down and pay attention, when you notice, you're no longer afraid anymore. You're full of love. Here's what I mean. There's this great movie called Sing 2. I don't know if you've heard of this movie. It's a great movie. You should watch it. And there's all these animals that perform in a musical. And it's called Out of This World. And the main actor in the play is a, is a female pig named Rosita. And she has this scene where she has to drop from the top of a ledge, a high platform, and fly around the theater with a cable attached to her. Except every time in rehearsal, when she gets to that ledge, she drops down. And she, and she drifts away from the ledge because she's afraid. And it's a long story. You've got to watch the movie. But they decide to perform the show anyway for one time. And then near the end of the musical, it gets to her part. And she's doing her single, singing. And she walk, walks to the edge of the platform. And she's ready to jump. She peers over and the same thing happens. She cowers down in fear and full of dread and she drifts away from the ledge. And while this is happening, at the same time, there's this bad guy, Mr. Crystal, who of course is the wolf. And on the other side of the stage, he has a koala bear, Buster Mooney, the director of the play, and the good guy in his hands. And again, it's a long story. I'm skipping over a lot of parts here. But he's basically throwing the koala bear off the edge of a high platform to kill him, okay? So you see it happening? Rosita's over here, afraid to, to, to jump. Buster Mooney, a koala bear, is falling to his death. Everyone see it in, in, her, in their head? And I love this scene where in the background, in the periphery of Rosita in fear, <laughs> this koala bear is dying, and time slows down, and Rosita turns and she notices. She notices. And she pays attention, and immediately... She gets up, and instead of drifting away, she leans forward and jumps, swings to Buster Mooney, saves that koala bear. And why does she do that? Because her noticing led her to love, right? It conquered her fears. It led her to action. When you begin to notice, it, it eliminates the fear and leads you to love. That's the point. So the goal of this first warning passage in Hebrews the command to pay close attention is not to make you feel shame about how far you've drifted away from Jesus or to fill you with fear of the punishment, but it warns you to pay attention to Jesus, to notice the work of salvation he has done for you and is still doing in the world, which should motivate you to love. And as you begin to notice, you'll become more and more like Jesus, who brings you this great salvation. Because the only time we see Jesus drifting away in the Gospels, he's usually away from his disciples um, in, in order to go pray. Or you see him drifting to people who are in need of healing or hungry crowds in need of feeding or a sinful woman in need of forgiveness. Jesus paid close attention to humanity and instead of drifting away, he leans in. 
he loves us even more. And in doing so, it took him all the way to the cross. Like in the garden, he knew Judas was coming to betray him. And it it filled him with fear. But instead of drifting away, he stayed for love, for you and for me. And even though you might drift away, Jesus never will. He will never leave you or forsake you. And we know this because he stayed on the cross to forgive us our sins, to save us, to heal us. And this is what the season of Lent is all about. It's remembering to pay attention, to really notice the suffering of Jesus who leaned in rather than drifting away in order to bring us a great salvation. So the author's like, how can we neglect this? How in the world can we neglect this knowing this, that Jesus did this for us? No, if this is what Jesus has done for us, let's lean in even more. Let's pay even more attention. Um, I'll, I'll close with this. <clears throat> I, um, like I said, on Valentine's Day, wasn't going on a date, uh, I'll tell you that much. Instead, um, I had to be an Asher at Ash Wednesday service, which is a privilege at Cedar Springs to do and so, um, in a highlight of the year. And so I went up there, and at the end of the service, as people are coming forward to receive the sign of cross on their foreheads and to hear that they are dust and will return to dust, but God's love is always, is always following them, um, my kids got in, in my line. And I was like, keep it together. And so they came up, um, three, my three older ones, and so I dipped my finger in the ash and, in the bowl that I was holding, and I put the cross on their foreheads. And then I kind of leaned down and looked in them, and I wanted to say, oh, pay attention to what I'm about to say. <laughs> pay close attention, child, because you're going to drift away, and I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this, that you came from dust, and to dust you will return, but you belong to Jesus, and his love will never leave you. Like that's the great salvation of the message of the book of Hebrews and the gospel. And it's for you and me, even now. Let us remember it and not neglect it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for warning passages. They wake, they wake us up. They remind us of what is true and what really matters. It's so easy to fall asleep in the spiritual life and in the world from distractions and complacency. Ah, but Lord, there are so many good gifts you give us. And you came not to condemn us, but to save us. Thank you for this great salvation. And I do pray for all of us in our hearts and minds that we would leave here not full of fear, but full of love, to notice what you are doing in the world and to participate in it. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for your love, life, and death for us. It's your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.